Welcome to the special focus meeting. This meeting is Couples in Recovery. The, the emphasis is on couples. My name is Vicki. I am a compulsive overeater, and I'm the moderator for this meeting. Help us preserve the cherished tradition of anonymity by refraining from taking pictures in this or any other meeting room. The format for this session is a reading, speaker, and sharing on the topic from the group. The reading is from For Today, page 341. There is only one happiness in life, to love and be loved. George Sand. A sense of loving and being loved is not restricted to one's spouse, children, parents, friends, or associates. It can be applied to everything and everyone in God's world. To love and feel loved is nothing less than to have a reverence for life. Recovery, in a way, means regaining the freedom to love without conditions and without expectation of return. As a speaker once put it, I love you. I don't care whether or not you love me. To love unconditionally is a difficult concept for many. Only spiritual recovery can give us an understanding of what it means. For today, has my thinking about love changed in OA? Our first speaker is Merle from West Hollywood, and he will speak for 20 minutes. Hi, everybody. My name is Merle. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Merle. I'm trying to think when I first came to an OA meeting in 1977. And it was because my eating was out of control. And uh, one of the reasons it was out of control was that I was also an alcoholic and I had sobered up a year before that and so I wasn't drinking anymore and I was suffering from feelings and I had also been an extreme smoker and I had quit smoking two years before and so the first month that I quit smoking I gained 30 pounds a year later, the first month after I quit drinking, I put on another 25 pounds. And without, without those other drugs, which had been a marvelous way of my controlling my, my eating, because food was my drug of choice before I even knew I was choosing a drug from, from the beginning, you know, I just had no defense against my eating. And I was successfully working the other 12-step program, and that was fine. It was, it was helping me with that problem, but it wasn't helping me at all with my eating. And I came to my very first OA meeting, and 
two guys uh, came up to me after the meeting and asked me if I wanted to go to lunch with them, and I said, sure. And they took me to lunch, and one of them had a glass of wine, the other one of them lit up a cigar, and I thought, Jesus, I know how to do that. And so I started to be in and out of this program. I started to fiercely control my food, focused on losing weight, rigidly practicing my abstinence, which I defined by my food plan. And I took off 40 pounds. I got another job, and it was stressful, and in 20 minutes it seemed I had put 50 pounds back on, and I started doing the yo-yo. And I did that yo-yo for almost 17 years, all the while successfully practicing my other 12-step program. But I had ballooned to even more than you see here, and I was... For me, the magic number that terrified me, and I know other people have different numbers, some bigger, some smaller, but the, the one that occupied my brain was 300 pounds. And once I passed 275, I, I was scared to death that in a matter of minutes or days, I, I, I was going to hit 300 pounds. And it was just about the time of the OA birthday party at the beginning of 1993, and for the last couple of years, my doctor at Kaiser had been urging me to get back into OA because I was now in my out. I had been in and out, in and out. And uh, he was a big adherent of 12-step programs. And he knew I was in AA, and he knew I'd been in and out of OA. And I threw a tantrum at him, and I said, I said, you, you know how confrontation doesn't work with us? I said, uh, so why do you keep doing that if uh, you know it's not effective? And he said, because the information is good. And I, didn't, I knew he was right. <laughs> so at that birthday party, and it was one of those years when they had a particularly good show, and I saw people that I really wanted to see more of. And I determined at that birthday party that I was going to come back into OA and, and really be a part of instead of a part from for a change because I was tired of being on the outside and I was scared to death about my weight and my eating. And I was just feeling awful about just about everything. The couple part of this thing happened earlier. In 1978, which was only a year before I got into my first meeting, and when I was only a couple of years uh, sober, I was extremely lonely. Everything in my life had been burned out. My career was in the toilet. I owed everybody money. I wasn't working. Uh, my third marriage had ended in divorce a couple of years, uh, about four years before that. And 
a young lady that I knew in my other 12-step uh, program was a musician, and she had booked a one-night gig with a little group she was putting together to try and resuscitate her career and was passing out uh, free tickets to everybody that she knew in the fellowship. And so it was a chance for me to uh, to join a lot of people I knew and, uh, and have a date. I started calling uh, girls that I knew, and everybody was either busy or already going. And uh, one guy I knew had just broken up with his girlfriend. I had met her once or twice, and she played the guitar. So I called her and asked her if she wanted to go to this uh, thing. She said, I'm already going with two girlfriends. Why don't you come with us? I said, okay. And one of the two girlfriends uh, you'll meet shortly. She's sitting right here. And when I got into the car, uh, they picked me up. She was sitting in the front passenger seat, and I got in the back. She turned around when she was introduced and uh, said hi. But she smiled at me. If you've ever seen her smile, you can understand why I was smitten on sight. And uh, then the, the, the rock music turned out to be extremely loud and not exactly my genre, nor hers. And she showed me how to make earplugs out of the napkins in this in this club so that my eardrums uh, wouldn't be permanently lost to me. And uh, that was how we met. And that was October of 78. And uh, we really started dating around the end of the year. And uh, that was uh, the beginning of uh, 79. I think we started living together uh, in early 80, and we got married in June of 81. So we just had an anniversary uh, on the 13th, which was uh, 22 years. We were both compulsive overeaters, and we were both practicing our disease at the time. Now, I was recovering from my alcoholism, and she was recovering from her, from her previous alcoholic, uh, so we both had our other 12-step programs, but neither one of us, neither one of us was abstinent yet in, uh, in OA. And neither one of us was skinny. And that turned out to be a plus because I gotta tell you, I am one of a majority of men that I've known, a majority of men that I've known, despite what some of your heads might have told you, that really find heavier women more attractive than skinnier ones. And uh, so I was extremely attracted to her, and uh, that worked, and uh, we eventually got married, and let's see, 20 from 83, I think it was a couple years after we got married that, uh, uh, that she first got abstinent, and I didn't. Now... I, can, I can't even imagine what it must have been like for her to live with a practicing compulsive overeater. We had been eating buddies. And now I was still eating and she, and she was, was not. And that went on for 10 years before I got, uh, before I got abstinent. And I did not get her program. And what I didn't get was that there was something wrong with my perfectionism. It was killing me, but I didn't get it. The thing that I was doing wrong with my ins 
in OA as opposed to my outs when I was doing the ins and outs was I was defining my abstinence by my food plan. And that meant that I was practicing my perfectionism. And my perfectionism, as I've heard it defined, is very simple. It means that I demand more from myself and everybody else than any human being can possibly deliver. In other words, I require the impossible. But, of course, I didn't see it that way at the time. I didn't get it. But that's what perfectionism is. It's requiring the impossible. And so, of course, when I couldn't deliver the impossible that I was requiring of myself, which was to work a perfect program and eat a perfect food plan and cleave to a perfect abstinence, and when I couldn't do it, because my disease told me that I was either perfect or worthless, I was a failure one more time. I was worthless one more time. And that was how I felt one more time. Now, since perfect isn't possible, unless you're a God, and I'm not, I don't know if anybody is, but I do know that I'm not, then the only remaining conclusion was worthless. And the way that feels, i got to eat. So my perfectionism wasn't working for me, and I wasn't getting it. And she was talking about that in meetings. I would go to meetings. I would hear her speak. Everybody loved the way she, she spoke. And I... I couldn't see it until she told the story that somebody referred to at the end of the, the last hour, uh, which I won't steal from her and, and tell, but uh, it was an image that, that came to her about a forest, and it suddenly clarified for me what I wasn't getting. And I began to see that the only possible outcome of my requiring perfection for myself was failure, that there was no other possible outcome. That defining my abstinence by my food plan was a blueprint for failure. There was no other outcome possible. And that was what I had been doing, and it wasn't working, it was killing me. And I had to recognize that I was an imperfect human being, and I had to accept that I was an imperfect human being, and I have to realize that that did not make me a worthless human being. And that it was all right to strive to do my best, but I had to accept that there wasn't any way to do any better. Not for me, not for anybody. And that was a big about face requirement of my thinking. What the program really does for me more than anything is make me look at things differently than I have ever looked at them before. It's, it's made me recognize what I was doing to create my problems. Uh, that, I think, is the is the greatest asset of the inventory steps. Very rarely 
very early in my uh, experience with the program, when I couldn't imagine the possibility of ever having any happiness again because everything in my life was so totally rotten. I asked somebody who'd been around for a while what you had to do to be happy. And he said, don't worry about it. Happiness is what happens automatically when we stop doing the things that make us unhappy. And I had been blind, genuinely blind, to all the things I had been doing to make me unhappy. I just hadn't been able to see it. So when I had to start doing inventory and to take a look at why I felt the way that I felt and why I felt so inadequate and why I felt so ashamed and why I felt I didn't measure up in so many ways, where that came from, and to start, start facing my fears and to start walking through them by practicing these principles instead of acting out what my head told me, that great liar, or what my feelings told me, because they lie worse than my head. By starting to base my actions on the principles of this program instead of my, my old bases of my thoughts, my feelings, and my desire to create an outcome, which of course is beyond my capacity because I'm powerless to create outcomes. I hated that when I first heard it. I thought that was nonsense. I thought if you're not powerless, you're a doormat. How can that be good? But what I began to find out on the program was that powerless and helpless do not mean the same thing. And I thought they did. I was wrong. I gradually discovered through my experience in the program that powerless and helpless mean the opposite. Because when I became aware, finally aware on a deep level, that I was powerless to create outcomes, I could do everything right get hit by a truck that comes racing across the sidewalk tomorrow. Or as I have done many times because I'm very lucky, I can do everything wrong and still turn up alive. I do not create outcomes. But once I stop trying to, once I accept my powerlessness, I am never helpless because when I'm willing to take the next step based on a spiritual pro uh, programs and spiritual principles at work, without necessarily knowing how things are going to turn out, but being willing to find out, there's always a next step that I can take. I am never helpless. I do not have to sit like a cowardly victim, all huddled up, afraid of life. I can always take an action. And that was a revelation. I mean, this, this stuff that's is so basic to a spiritual program is the stuff that works. That's what attracts me to the program. That's what keeps me coming back. I'm not here because I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I mean, my disease is alive and well. And I'm not even sure that I like to call myself a recovering compulsive overeater anymore because 
that suggests that I think my, my disease is going away, and it isn't. What the program is doing for me is it's teaching me how to live successfully with my disease so that I don't have to be a victim one day at a time. I've been given back a life that it's better than any of the, the, the life that I had before. Better than the life I could have imagined 22 years ago. And, oh, this, it's time? Okay. Then I'll wrap it up by saying thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Meryl. So that's how that works. And now we'll hear from his lovely wife, Nanette. Nanette, because they're married, is also from West Hollywood, and she'll speak for 20 minutes. Nanette, I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi. Um, I came to OA uh, 28 years ago, and I came here to um, lose some weight so I could catch a man who would then fix me. I wasn't sick and tired of eating. I just want to get my body in order to attract a man, and uh, I was sure that my life would be wonderful once I did that. And the first two years, I had um, three periods of abstinence. I had three days, four days, and five days. And every now and then, I'd have one day sprinkled here and there. It was really difficult. Um, I went to about three meetings a week. And lots of times after meetings, I would eat enormous amounts of food to get rid of the feeling of having been in a meeting. And it's not that I didn't like you. I did like you, and I identified with being a compulsive overeater from my first meeting. And I didn't know this, but I always ate for relief. And I am the garden variety kind of compulsive overeater. I eat when I'm happy, eat when I'm sad, eat when I'm bored, eat when I'm excited. And even to this day, um, when I eat, I feel like I'm having a party, like it's a party. And uh, I've even called my sponsor sometimes and say, I, I feel like, you know, after lunch, I say, I feel like having a party now. In other words, I want to eat. Um... <coughs> Because I hung around OA, I hung around members of OA who were also members of AA. And one of them was speaking at an AA meeting, and um, I, I had never been to an AA meeting, but I knew that OA sprung from AA as AA was the core. And um, so I, a few of us OA people were going to go hear her speak. And uh, it was a big adventure because, to me, AA was eight men in trench coats in a room with a bare light bulb. That was AA. <laughs> and uh, when I got there, it was this enormous speaker meeting, and I, I could just feel the energy in the air. And it was, energy was so palpable, I could feel it on my face. And um, I loved AA. It was so exciting to be there. Um, it was, and I didn't understand... AA was a program of recovery because I had no recovery of my own, so I didn't know what that was. And to me, AA was just an exciting place to be. It was like going to the theater. There was this 
um, sad story, what happened, and this happy ending, and everyone would applaud. And I started to seek out these AA meetings, and um, at these meetings I kept seeing this one guy there, and um, who is, was not my husband, um, some other guy, and we struck up a relationship, which is like mission accomplished. I came to OA to get a guy, and there he was. And our relationship was kind of on the stormy side. It was on again, off again, misunderstanding, storming out, that kind of stuff. And the people at this meeting were very nice to me, and they knew I wasn't um, a member of their fellowship. And they kept suggesting another 12-step program for friends and families of alcoholics. And uh, eventually I went there to get some handy hints on how to manage them better in program way. And it was there that um, I started, I hit a bottom. And bottom for me is not what gets you to the program, but it's what makes you become willing and teachable. And for me, it happened in the other 12-step program. And I stopped going to OA for about five years. And uh, I started gaining weight. And um, I was always heavy. In my family, I was, I was identified as the fat kid in my family. Um, I have two sisters, an older sister and a younger sister. And I was always like, you know, she's the fat one. And it wasn't said necessarily in a um, put-down way. It was just a descriptive thing in my family. Um, I came back to OA about 21 years ago. And what happened was I was in the other 12-step program, and a friend of mine decided to, of the other, from the other 12-step program decided to go, uh, go to Weight Watchers. And I said, if you want uh, company, I'll go with you. And she did one company, and she chose, she, she said she wanted to go to Weight Watchers before Thanksgiving. She said after the holidays. So after the holidays was after New Year's Day, and she chose a Sunday morning at 9 a.m., and so my being a good friend went with her, and when I got there, there was a sign on the table that said, no visitors. It was a little tent card, no visitors. So that means if I'm to be a friend to her, I had to, to sit next to her at the meeting, I had to join. So I joined. I paid the $15, which was the special of the day, and they shoved this literature in my hand, and they put me on the scale, and I weighed more than I ever weighed in my life. And I said, well, I've joined. I'll just give this program a try, even if it's a half-assed try. And that's how I put it, and I started to weigh and measure, and I started to lose weight for five months. It was a miracle, because up to that time, I always sewed. I never, you know, bought clothes off the rack, and I started to buy clothes off the rack and wonderful stuff like that. Um, so I did lose the weight, but I, I started to gain it back. I mean, I started not being able to do that weighing and measure stuff. I, every day I'd eat all my allotments. Of bread allotments, and then I have to eat snacks, and you know I just couldn't do it. So I came, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to like um, gain weight because I had lost weight one time before Weight Watchers, and it was 13 years before. And I didn't want to gain the weight back and then have to wait 13 more years, which would have made me in my 40s. So I came. I, I wanted some permanent solution before I gained all the weight back. And I'd been to OA, and I knew from hearing what OA talked about that this was the last house in the block and all that. So I came back. And um, this time I had a really difficult time. I was miserable. I didn't like you. I didn't like – and this is before the OA 12 and 12 was written. So we were using AA literature. And I already identified very strongly with being a non-alcoholic because of my other 12-step program. So um, – I was just miserable, and um, 
I was miserable at home, and my husband was complaining about me. And um, I'll digress and see how, tell you how I met him. Um, he told you one version, which is true. But um, a month after I met him at that rock nightclub thing, um, I, I was at a, a party where I knew the wife and he knew program people, program couple. And he was invited to the husband. I was invited to the wife. It was afternoon party before Christmas. And uh, we were just talking in groups, and I saw him. And it was, I, I really perked up when I saw him, and I didn't know why. He was this very interesting man. And by about 4 o'clock, the party was about to break up, and so he escorted me to my car. And he said, I'd like to talk to you some more, but I have to do my laundry. And I thought, wow, this guy does laundry. And um, <laughs> he later told me he was afraid he was going to turn me off by telling me that. But I thought he was taking, he was, but he was learning on his program to tell the truth. And I thought, this guy is taking care of the business of living. I mean, I appreciated it. And much later, he told me he was actually wearing his last pair of clean shorts, and he had to do laundry. <laughs> so we, you know, started dating, and um, we, I, I never knew him as a practicing alcoholic. He was sober. And um, anyway, I was back in OA having a miserable time. I learned all my credentials from my other 12-step program transferred to OA so you could see what a great program I had over there, but I couldn't get any abstinence. Um, but one thing that I realized um, was that I had the disease of perfectionism, and I had the disease of perfectionism so strong that it was like we were conjoined twins. If one twin got the flu, they would both get the flu. If one twin took an aspirin, it would be in both circulation systems. And unless I was willing to recover from the disease of perfectionism, I was never going to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating. And the only way I've found to recover from the disease of perfectionism is that when I'm imperfect, I have to keep it. I can't start fresh because that's practicing the disease of perfectionism. And I said, I'll have meals at meal time with life in between. And... Um, one of the things I had, the very first thing, my very first prayer in abstinence was this. Dear God, please clean up my food later because I can't do it now. And the only thing I did knew, it was uh, meals at meal time with life in between. And um, I realized that when I went to a restaurant, I ate too many rolls. I would, um, I would put the rolls down. I would start the roll and start the butter and then I'd eat the, the roll would be finished and there'd be uh, some butter left from the butter. I'd have to pick up the next roll to finish the butter and then there wouldn't be enough butter in the packet to, for the second roll so I'd have to open a second packet of butter to finish the second roll and then that roll would be gone and then I'd pick up the third roll to use for the second butter and it was, you know, it was a snowball. So I said one roll and one pat of butter no matter which runs out first. And and when I was in the restaurant, I figured whatever they served me was my portion. So that's what I ate, whatever they, last grain of rice, the parsley they decorated with, everything was mine. <laughs> and then I didn't do that perfectly because one restaurant put down a, a basket of rolls, had three different kinds of rolls. I thought, oh, the, the big debate started. Do I have one of each, one that, one of each kind, or do I have one representing the whole basket? 
And I didn't think it was a good idea for me to feel deprived, so I had one of each roll, and they all shared the same pat of butter. And that was another meal in abstinence, and that's how I did it. Um, I've been, it took me eight years to get abstinent. I've been abstinent 20 years as of January. Um, I was abstinent eight times in eight years. The second longest time was 27 days. And um, it's really, my topic is couples in recovery. And I find it it's very difficult to share about because I don't talk about couples in recovery in my life. I just, there's a couple in my life. I mean, he's in my life and we live life together and, and we have the same nomenclature and same discussion. And um, after, shortly after we got married, we lived together a year and a half and then we got married. And um, we dated a year, lived together a year and a half, and then we got married. Um, after I got married, somebody found out that my husband was Jewish. And um, I'm Chinese, he's Jewish, and we look really different. And um, he, she said, well, what about the religious difference? And until she asked that question, I didn't realize that there was a religious difference. I mean, it just didn't occur to me. And we were married already. And I realized right from her question of somebody I really didn't know was that we look really different. I mean, I, I just never, it never occurred to me. Um, he's uh, a guy, I'm a gal. Um, he's Jewish, I'm Chinese, I grew up going to Sunday school. He calls himself a born-again atheist. Um, um, we're 17 years apart. I mean, there is like big differences that people would notice off, right, right away that I didn't notice. I have a disability. I had polio when I was one and a half years old. He's able-bodied and he's tall and short. I mean, there's so many differences that I never occurred to me that we had a religious difference. And I thought, why didn't, then it, you know, later I just kept thinking, like, why didn't I notice? Because I, now I notice we look real different. <laughs> why are we a couple even? And, um, I thought about, you know, I, I, I never felt we had a religious, and I realized the reason we don't have a religious difference is that we have the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous, and for him, AA, and for me, Al-Anon. And these, there doesn't seem to be a difference. We have the same way of dealing with stuff. The last thing we dealt with, um, which, the latest thing, which I don't think is the best story necessarily, but it's the latest thing, is that we drove here yesterday, which is Thursday, we were asked to speak, to present, do this Region 2 thing uh, a month before. Last, you know, kind of last minute, because you have to, in couples in recovery, you have to have a married couple who are in recovery, and there aren't that many of those. So we were asked to do it, and we did it. We said yes, and then we made plans to come here, and we did. And um, we were taking my car, and it, my car had 16,000 miles on it, and we, I missed the 15,000 mile service. And it's my car, it's my responsibility. I'm supposed to have done that. I'm supposed to like bring it up if I need help, but I didn't. And I kept, and he brought it up, and I said, yeah, we should talk about it. But I never brought it up. We never talked about it again, other than his saying, we should talk about getting the car service. Well, two days before, like Tuesday, past Tuesday, it's like, did you get the car service? No. I, I'm not sure what I have to do. I'll, I'll grab the booklet and look. And I'm, I'm, I'm totally, like, helpless, which I don't have to be, but I was in this case. And so he got mad at me because it's my responsibility because it's my car. He has his own car and his own schedule. 
If I needed help, it was my responsibility to ask for help, and I didn't. And I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to face it. We had a big fight. And I made an appointment Thursday morning, 7 a.m., to go to the service department to get it done so we could drive to Palm Springs from West Hollywood. <clears throat> and so, um, so I did it. It was fine. They tried me. They tried to charge me $159 for this service. They talked. They said they'd give me the coupon price, even though I didn't have a coupon. So I, it was 139. And I didn't know. And they tried to give me like $500 more job, you know, at this Toyota place, because something about the carbon buildup and this has to be flushed out. My transmission, transmission fluid was dirty, and I didn't know enough about cars to know about this. But I felt I was being bullshit. I mean, I just didn't trust them, even though they were a reputable Toyota dealer near where I work. And, but I knew enough to ask questions. And one of the questions I asked, is it safe to drive to Palm Springs with it, this car? And it was safe. And at first he couldn't say it was safe. He would say, if you high heat and distance and blah, blah, blah. And I kind of pin him down, is it safe or isn't it safe? And they did everything they were supposed to do. And so finally, it was agreed that it was safe. It wasn't a dangerous thing that was going to happen. And, um, and he says, well, I always suggest to my customers to have this done like $189 of, of one of three things that had to be done twice a year, in the beginning of the year and the end of year of the year. So that means like January and just, I mean, December and January, that's like two months apart. He didn't even say six months, and he pulled out this wretched part to see the carbon build up, blah, blah, blah. But I have a, like a bullshit meter, and I knew that I was being, you know, snowed, doing that razzle-dazzle like Richard Gere in the courtroom. I was getting, but, so anyway, I, I did it. It was worth it. It was my fault. It was last minute. There's no time to check another Toyota dealer. It cost us this much money. So then I told, so we, then we talked about it again. He wasn't mad. You know, my husband wasn't mad. He, he just felt I was being snowed because I was a woman. And, um... I said I was sorry, you know, I, I didn't want to deal with it, so I wanted you to take care of me and do this. And he made amends for me for blowing up. And so we made amends to each other for, for the way we behaved. We didn't behave very nicely for a while. Um, but, it was, but because we're in the program, these are things we do, and we know how to do it. There's a, that little time where you have to act out and do everything, and then the ultimate is that you, you do practice the principles of this program. And so that's what we've done. Um, I'll just end with this uh, story that Ida likes to hear, and she's not here, but the one that Merle referred to, and that's why I'm telling it. It's the way I, I envision my recovery. My recovery is like a forest, and the trees in the forest are days of abstinence. And there are enough trees in this forest to make the forest a forest. There are Christmas trees and sequoias and oaks and just wonderful trees. And if I only look at the trees, I miss what's the rest of what's in my forest. And some of these trees are actually tree stumps. They died. Uh, lightning hit, whacked, it died, maggots crawling through them. If you hike over there, there's a grove of tree stumps. And, but if I only look at the trees, I'll miss what's the rest of what's in my forest, because there's more there than trees. There are waterfalls and rivers and lakes and squirrels and California poppies and blue jays. And I don't 
look at a tree stump in the forest and say, oh my God, there's a tree stump here. Let's trash this forest and go on to the fresh one. Because I know that this forest is God-given and God-made and has nothing to do with me. And if I'm to believe that my recovery is God-given and God-made, then I have to accept everything that's there no matter what my personal opinion is. So if I ever think that I, this is a rule of mine, if I ever think that I've broken my abstinence, I don't decide whether I have or I haven't for three to six months. Because it's easy enough to say uh, today is June 20th, it's a new, it's, I'm starting my absence over, you know, it's you know, starting it fresh. If I said that, because it's easy enough to change a date, but I don't make a decision of whether I change a date or not for three to six months. And in case I haven't, I have to keep on keeping on. And um, the, the second longest time I've been absent is 27 days. And... Um, And now it's 22 years because I've been following this rule. Um, I think my time is really up. And I, I, I'm sorry that I found this topic to be extremely difficult to talk about. And um, because I just don't envision um, my recovery in that manner, like couples in recovery. We just have it one day at a time supporting each other. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, it's now time for sh it's now time for sharing on the topic. And since this meeting is being taped, please make sure you sign the release form after you share. And uh, we'll share from three to five minutes. And I'm going to just remind us of our for today reading. For today, has my thinking about love changed in OA? Who would like to share? I just don't think that's going to work. I'll try. Hi, my name is Mary and I'm a compulsive eater. And I'm from Sacramento. It's nice to be in Palm Springs. Um, I came to OA four years ago after a messy divorce. And my therapist said, I said to her, I think I'm done dealing with the relationship problems. I now need to do something about my weight. And she said, you need to go to OA. And it took me a few months to get here. And, uh, and then I finally came, scared to death, like so many people. And, uh, and started on a program of recovery and learned about the 12 steps and all the things that we're going to hear a lot more about this weekend. I met my fiancé in this program. Um, we are going to get married in two months. And shortly after we, uh, we started dating, um, I said to him, you know, what I know from OA, from listening to the stories of other folks who are in long-term personal relationships, with their husbands is that being in a relationship is like putting miracle grow on your character defects, to quote a former sponsor of mine. And I said, you know, I, I know that my behavior in my marriage was not good, and I don't want to repeat a lot of those same mistakes. And at a previous OA convention, I heard a speaker share about a 12-step program for couples in recovery. 
And so I asked him, uh, because at the time he lived down in Lake Elsinore and I lived in Sacramento, I asked him if he would be willing to, once we lived in the same city, um, you know, go to that program. And he had a lot of faith in the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. He had heard of other couples who were in OA who had tried to apply the traditions to their uh, relationship because if the tradition works for a group, and that's two members or more, then it ought to work well for a couple. But that was the first time he had ever heard of another 12-step program dedicated to couples in recovery. And so we went to find uh, this program, and um, I know it's an outside issue, so if anybody wants to know a lot more about it, see me after the meeting. But um, what I find is that it's the relationship problems that I have that drive me to eating. Um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an overeater who eats for all the same reasons we've heard, happy, sad, bored, lonely, tired, you know, all that stuff. But when I'm angry because my significant other has been a complete jerk that day or uh, I'm frightened because I'm in danger of losing my job, I work for the state and we have a, you may have heard, a budget crisis, and he just lost his job and we've got a wedding in two months and, you know, there's, there's stuff going on in my life. Um, I'm glad that I not only have my program, my individual program of recovery, and he has his individual program of recovery. We both have our higher powers in OA, but our relationship has a higher power that we've learned to come to know. And we've learned to communicate together. And so to go back to the reading that we had, you know, how has my understanding of love changed in OA? I don't know where I got my understanding of what marriage was supposed to be. I think it's a combination of Father's Knows Best and movies that I saw growing up as a kid. Um, my parents were good role models. They never fought in front of the kids, though, so I didn't know how you fought. I didn't know that it was okay to fight. Thank you. So uh, I've learned in this other program that it's okay to have conflict. Uh, we try to keep it respectful conflict. It's okay to ask for my needs to be met. It's okay to do a lot of things that I didn't know were okay. And so by having that other program, which I work in conjunction with this, we, we consider it like a three-legged stool thing. Um, it's very cool. It reinforces my work in this program. It helps me keep abstinent. It gives me another sponsor I can talk to about relationship issues um, besides my sponsor in OA. It's just a, a whole other level of support. And I have other couples who model for me what a, an adult relationship looks like because I don't know what that is. And when I think I'm the only one out there who's angry, upset, confused, you know, going through these particular problems, I have people who can model for me what it looks like. So um, I'm grateful for OA because I found out that there are other 12-step programs. I mean, there's hundreds of them, for goodness sakes. But there's one that's for couples. So it's really cool. So um, between, between my two programs, I have a life today that is beyond my wildest dreams. And so thanks very much. Thank you very much. Who would like to share next? Hi, I'm Vicki. I'm a compulsive overreader. Hi. 
very glad, happy to be here today. Um, couples in recovery. Uh, when I met my husband, this is my third husband we're talking about here. Uh, my second husband I met in OA, actually. He was 20 years younger than me, and uh, that was kind of exciting. It was uh, a good man, good man. It's just that his career went one way, and mine went another way because of our ages. And so we split amicably. One lawyer. Um, my third husband got sober in AA many years ago, 35 years ago. Um, it turns out that the core of his addiction was not the alcohol. It was a symptom. The greater core was sex addiction. Um, I, you know, this program is attraction rather than promotion, and I tried to coerce him into going into program, into a 12-step program. Uh, it didn't work. I've been in OA for 28 years. I, this is my life. I can't imagine a day without speaking to someone in program. But, you know, this program is for people who, need, who want it, not for people who need it, because if it was the people who needed it, it's the whole world would be in here. So I've had to learn that there are other ways of recovery for both of us, other than both of us being in a 12-step program for today. I have great hope that with vigilance and with patience and with working together through a different type of program, which is meditation and sharing our core beliefs and sharing things with each other, um, it's, it's amazing. It's at all the time that I was trying to force him to go into a program, he kept resisting and he kept rebelling. And, in, and of course, my food got bad, and, of course, the judgments and, and the criticisms and everything was like, why can't you be more like me? Well, who would want to do that? And uh, so it, I wasn't really attracting him. I was promoting uh, the program. That doesn't work. So today, I'm just grateful that my higher power is leading me with him to a different path, even though it's connected to the 12-step program. And I do, do pray that he will someday go back to the 12-step program, because in my estimation, this is where it's at. But I, can't, I have to keep an open mind. You know, I, I know so many couples where one is in program, the other isn't, and it, they suffer. And that's what I did. I suffered. And I don't have to suffer. My higher power is mine, and he's got his higher power. And if I interrupt, which I've done for years, then how can his higher power work on him if I keep interrupting the process? And it's taken me a long time to learn this. I am so very grateful to be a member of Overeaters Anonymous. And however he gets his recovery, whether it's through the 12 steps or whatever other process, I'm very grateful that because I'm in OA, that I can learn to have the patience and I can, I can help him by leaving him alone. You know, some, somebody in program that I know very well keeps saying, leave him alone, leave him alone, leave him alone, you know. And I think this is really a, a core thing for me. I have to learn to leave him alone. And not just him, but everybody. You know, who says that I know best? But our, our recovery in, in each of our ways is getting stronger we are getting stronger together. There's more respect. There's more admiration. And I'm just, it's wonderful. And when I saw that this topic was couples in recovery, I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't come in and speak on this. You know, but, uh, but there might be people who hope that their 
partner comes into recovery through some form of 12-step program. And uh, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really glad to be here and to listen to you about how you deal with your relationships. And I hope to hear a lot more about it. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you very much, Vicki. Would anyone else like to share? Put it on you somewhere. Okay. Hi, my name's Ian. I'm a gratefully recovering composer of Rita. And I'm Mariel's other half. So I get I get every muzzle share. Um, I want to keep this brief, so I'm going to say the most important thing to me of everything that Mariel and I have done, whether it be in this program or another program, is to develop and understand the concept of a coupleship. And to us, a coupleship is something that is something apart from either of us. So each of us have our own recovery and our own recovery programs, and our coupleship has a recovery program. Our coupleship to me is like a plant. I'm not a gardener. She's the gardener. But it's like a plant that we have to nurture to make it grow and grow strong. So I have a higher power of my understanding. Mariel has a higher power of her understanding. And like a Venn diagram where the things overlap, our coupleship has a higher power of our joint understanding. Meryl says prayers in her own way in the morning to her higher power. I say prayers um, to my higher power. I know that my prayers are for my own benefit. They're very selfish prayers. I can't say the same for Meryl. But our coupleship prayers are not for me and they're not for her. They're for us. Anything that I can't say that is as much her as me, I don't put into a coupleship prayer. It took me a while to get the idea of a coupleship, that it was something apart from me. But once I've got it, it seems so logical to me that I have to be, I have to own up to 100% of looking after that coupleship. Meryl has to also own up to 100% of looking after that coupleship. So that coupleship is a nice, strong thing because it's got us looking after it 200%. Um, I only learned that indirectly from being in this program and I know that if I had not been in this program and tried to have a relationship as honest and as communicative as the one that I've had it would be down the drains by now so thanks thank you very much we have time for one more You really don't want to hear me talk on coupleship. My sponsor, when she heard I was moderating this, she said, and did you fall off your chair laughing when you heard they were doing it? So, anyone else? <laughs> I just put my disclaimer in. I'm, I'm here to learn about it. You don't want to hear my story. Or maybe you do, if you know what you don't want. If you... <laughs> this is Miss Phyllis. I, I trust her recovery. Uh -oh. <laughs> I'm Phyllis, compulsive reader. Um, <laughs> couples in relationship. I have a talent for choosing people that are totally unavailable, and I'm not involved in the relationship. And I had always said that if I did get involved in a relationship, that I wanted to choose someone that was in recovery, at least 
that uh, we spoke the same language and, and um, because I believe in the 12 steps of, uh, of our recovery. Uh, yeah, couple, you know, how can I really talk about it because it's not where I am. I, I choose people that are so unavailable that um, I went to this. The 11 step is a great part of my recovery program, and um, I want to be initiated into this program. Uh, and meditation is a big part of that. That um, one of the brothers was speaking, one of the monks, and um, and I looked at him and I said, God, I've been in love twice in my life. This could be the third one. <laughs> the man had taken a vow of celibacy. Um, I got into a relationship in the early part of my recovery with a man who also said that he was in recovery. And uh, we were together for about three years. And after that time, he, um, he chose to take his life. And... Um, I was standing up in an OA meeting I had. I was getting a six-month chip. And, um, and, and what I found out as far as a relationship, what I found out for me is that my relationship and my recovery doesn't depend on anybody but my higher power and on myself. And that no matter what happens, no matter who's in my life or who isn't in my life, that... Um, that I can feel my feelings about that. that uh, because I was so dependent on, on this man at times. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd look at him and say, how do we feel today? And um, I, there are a lot of successful couples in, in my area that are in recovery, and I watch them. And they're my role models. And they've been together for a long time. And, and I say to myself, if I ever grow up enough and get that healthy, okay, I want something like that. Someday, but um, yeah. So thanks for calling on me, anyway, Vicky. And um, all I know is that you let go and let God, and that as long as I remember who's in charge, it's going to be all right. Thank you. Okay. It's. Um, thank everyone who shared. And it's now time to close this session. Will you please join me in a moment of silent meditation, remembering a compulsive overeater who suffers in and outside of these rooms. We will follow with the serenity prayer. 